Lately, with the boom in dot-com and high-tech companies, Enron was vigorously morphing into an Internet telecommunications conglomerate. Enron Online, the company's online trading platform, was already the largest e-commerce site in the world. And now, broadband was the new buzzword inside the company. Enron was gearing up to trade space available on high-speed telephone lines in order to deliver movies and more into private homes over its Enron Intelligent Network, a new and improved Internet. It was poised to dominate AT&T and all the other behemoths. This corporate shape-shifting made Enron seem, to Wall Street, less like an IBM or an Exxon and more like the poster child for the new economy, a business so fast-paced, so protean, so forward-looking that it could change its stripes virtually overnight to suit the zeitgeist. So, if you wanted to get ahead at Enron, you had to be able to change, too. Sharon, for instance, had successfully engineered herself into the hottest sector of the company, broadband. Broadband was the reason Wall Street analysts were deliriously touting Enron. After the company rolled out its telecom plans at an analyst's meeting in January, Enron's stock moved 13 points in one day. Broadband proved yet again that Enron's employees were the smartest, the shrewdest, the most dedicated and ambitious on the planet. They were purveyors not of products, but of ideas, of what Jeff Skilling called intellectual capital. A company didn't need bricks and mortar to triumph in the new age. It needed smarts, smarts that, as Skilling liked to claim, would propel Enron from its old role as the world's leading energy company to its destiny as the world's leading company. So far, Enron's numbers were on track to do just that, to land Enron in the top ten of the Fortune 500. Third quarter revenues had grown over 150% from the prior year's corresponding quarter to $30 billion, bringing total revenues for the first nine months of 2000 to $60 billion, up $20 billion from 1999. The company's stock had quadrupled in value since January 1998 to almost $90 a share. In just five years, Enron grew to rival 1990s tech giants like Cisco and Microsoft and behemoths like GE. It was a media darling. Fortune magazine hailed Enron as the country's most innovative company for five years in a row and included Enron in the top quarter of its list of the best 100 companies to work for in America. Skilling was widely regarded as the most brilliant corporate leader in the country, a Jack Welch for the new millennium. CEO Ken Lay had laid the groundwork for Enron's global reach. He could get virtually any world leader from China to Costa Rica to return his phone calls in an instant. He counted among his closest friends powerful state legislators, entrenched members of the U.S. Congress, current and former presidents. Everywhere Sharon Watkins looked, there were bright young people who had made revolutionary changes and made incomprehensible fortunes in return. 
and all before getting close to their 40th birthdays. Enron was, in short, a company of winners. At the dawn of the 21st century, those who were bright, young, and fiscally ambitious were reassessing their career choices. They could slave away in some fusty commercial bank or corporation for years at a salary in the high five figures, or they could join a Wall Street investment bank where they could make a lot of money but never really create anything of value. Silicon Valley was great, but it was overrun. And then there was Enron. Those who packed their bags and raced to Houston were the ones who wanted to run their own show right away. By the time they were 25, salary commensurate with their genius. Certainly Enron had worked for Sharon Watkins. She grew up northwest of Houston in the small town of Tomball, which had its moment in the sun during the oil boom of the 1920s. There were drilling rigs inside the city limits when Sharon was a girl, sharing a small two-bedroom house with her divorced mother and younger sister. Her mother Shirley taught business at a nearby high school and encouraged Sharon to go into accounting. It was secure, something she could build a career on. Sharon took her advice, graduating from the University of Texas with honors and getting a master's in accounting in 1982. Arthur Anderson had recruited her, promoted her to audit manager within five years, and, at her request, shipped her off to the New York office in 1987. From Anderson, Sharon worked briefly in a commodity finance boutique. Then, in 1993, followed the well-trod path from the offices of Anderson to those of its biggest client, Enron. She could hardly believe her luck when she was hired, the trips on the corporate jet to schmooze California investors, ski jaunts with bankers in Colorado, sales trips to the U.K., South Africa, Chile, Peru, Panama, the Philippines, and Korea, helping to expand Enron's energy markets, or, as she imagined, bringing cheaper, cleaner power to the people who desperately needed it. For her efforts, Sharon, whose mother pinched pennies, had been richly rewarded by any standards other than Enron's own. From a starting salary of $95,000, she was now clearing $150,000, along with stock options and bonuses that more than doubled her income. She owned a home in one of Houston's best neighborhoods and never had to ask for the right tools to get the job done. Enron gave her the laptop, the Palm Pilot, the cell phone, the business class tickets, the ergonomic desk and office chair, and the assistant who did not have to be told where to book dinner or hotel reservations in London. Even though she had been at Enron since 1993, she was still amazed by the high-end toys parked in the company garage, the dizzying array of BMW sedans, Porsche convertibles, Ferraris, Mercedeses, Range Rovers, and customized SUVs. She loved Enron's oval-shaped tower of mirrored glass, with its twin tower rising across the street, the purposeful people from all over the world scurrying across the lobby's glossy granite floor to get to their desks faster. 
the brightly colored ceiling banners heralding employees' commitment to Enron's vision and values, respect, integrity, communication, excellence. The lobby's 12-foot multi-screen television reported perpetual NYSE, NYMEX, and Enron Online updates, as did the mini-screens in the elevators. The company cafe featured spring rolls and gourmet wraps, the coffee bar featured custom lattes and mochas. Mini massages were available in the company gym. It was almost, but not quite, too much. If you deserved all this, you knew you were very, very important. Of course, there was a downside. It wasn't easy being the company of the future. Enron was constantly reorganizing to stay ahead of the pack, and a lot of people just couldn't cut it. Maybe employee X couldn't close a multi-million dollar deal within the requisite six months. Or maybe employee Y got crosswise with a higher-up. He wouldn't give up credit to his boss. Or maybe employee Z, for some reason, parenthood, a change in circumstances at home, etc., resisted the 16-hour workdays, the 80-hour work weeks, or the trips to places like Clifton, Kansas, or Calcutta. He would lose faith that he was creating the future through his association with Enron, and then he would stumble, and soon enough he'd be branded a loser, too lazy or too obstructive, or worse, just not smart enough. And then, almost as ephemerally as it had begun, the employee's career at Enron would draw to a close.